minute to recognize that Kirk has literally the gayest Eagles gear ever produced. It's like the human embodiment of like when you're still too like homophobic to admit that you're gay. Like there's still too much in there, but you're like, yes, this is something that I also like sports guys. (laughs) Well, it is the NFL draft tonight, everyone. So. Oh wow! No so one here excited. knows what that means. Everyone drafting. <laughs> I'm <sighs> I'm drafting you to say okay, carry it on. Or okay, okay, okay. I'm very unprepared for this episode, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome back to Let's Unpack That, everybody. Your biweekly podcast where this queer, questioning, and questionable quartet unpack topics at the top of our mind through the lens of anxiety, depression. Joe Biden's first 100 days and everything in between. Joining me again are my favorite people in the world. If his father had it his way, this would be his snowflake son last episode until he learns how to become a real man. Andrew Nagy, welcome back to the podcast. Wow, that could have gone either way. Oh, I, I thought that was Kirk's, but um, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if her mother had used that chancla correctly, maybe she wouldn't have invested in a cat, a white refrigerator, and a sea of plants that are actively trying to rid themselves from the earth. Erica First of Ellis. all, my refrigerator is a GE French store. Do not ever come after my fridge, ever. <laughs> well, speaking of plants hopefully trying to rid themselves from the earth, If his mother and father had given him an ounce of balanced attention during his childhood, he probably wouldn't be the perfect combination of too gay and too homophobic. He's Kirk Wilson. It was was too much. It was too much. (laughs) And that's how the podcast got canceled. Well, welcome back, everyone. Super excited to have the three of you here with me. Um, Today, we're going to be unpacking a couple different things mostly as it relates to Joe Biden's first 100 days and the American jobs plan. In addition to that, we'll be doing our packet ups on this Monday episode because our second episode of the week is a full unpacking about the importance of believing survivors of sexual assault. And I sit down with my friend, Emily, who is a licensed professional counselor, trauma specialist, to talk about why we should believe survivors. And we talk about this conversation through the lens of AOC's admission um, that she was sexually assaulted um, and that she is a survivor. So um, that's going to be the Thursday episode, but this week we're going to jump right into it. So last night on Wednesday, Joe Biden gave a pseudo State of the Union address where he talked about the next phase of his administration, specifically the American Families Plan. He gave us an overview of where the administration is going to go, his strategic priorities, and some other talking points. So We're going to unpack the speech with some of the things that we liked and also some of the things that we wished he would had talked about. But kind of broadly, before we get started, um, the speech so far has been very well received um, with a CBS poll, um, you know, 85 percent of the viewing audience saying they had a positive view of Biden while watching the speech. Um, Hopefully that helps because his approval numbers are not the highest right now. Um, But then after that, after we kind of talk about the speech and the American Families Plan a little bit, we're really going to go more in depth into the American Jobs plan, um, because it's great that we want to pass the family's plan, but really the, the work is on the jobs plan right now. And that's where I think all of us as listeners of this podcast or politically engaged people 
need to get in touch with our representatives and our senators to push for progress because that's the bill that's sort of in draft form right now. Um, so Erica, I want to start off with you. What did you like most about the speech, the 100 days, kind of what stuck out to you as you were watching and then reading some of the coverage today? Um, I think one of the big things was this really felt like a State of the Union address where it was just organized and well done, but it was the perfect amount of like, there was still passion behind the words, um, but it wasn't the type of, like it wasn't Trump, because I can't say that Trump wasn't passionate. At in all. bed, in bed, he's very, sorry. <laughs> I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think it about that. It was one time. <laughs> anyway, not to say that Trump isn't passionate, but he his passion is fear-based, whereas Biden's passion is very much, it shows us a little more optimism. Kirk just turned purple again. Because he said optimism. Oh my God. <laughs> He's photosynthesizing. He's photosynthesizing. <laughs> um, but overall, it, it was just very positive and all of the criticism around Joe Biden and how he speaks, I think that not as many people have a foot to stand on with that one. Um, so I think overall, I was super impressed. Um, and that's to say, do I want another Biden term? No. <laughs> See, you know, it's interesting that you say that. Um, you know, uh, I, I do agree, you know, about the speech and his 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 kind of like eloquence, I feel like last night. Um, I also saw like a quick statistic. Um, I think it might have been in, in Tangle, actually, um, that said like he was supposed to give 6,000 words, um, but he actually spoke 8,000. So he ad-libbed a lot. He added a lot of emotion. And I think that that probably made the speech more successful. I mean, he pretty much added 25% onto the speech. And that's, you know, I, I couldn't tell that. I wasn't getting lost at parts. I was really engaged in it. I was going to say the one thing that he said, and I'm like, so many outlets have kind of blown it up. But when he said, I think it was my fellow Americans, trickle down econ economics has never worked. And to me, it was like, finally someone fucking said it. And someone who needed to say it and needed to be listened to said it because economists have been saying it for years, not enough politicians have said it who are, I would, can, I would consider Biden moderate centrist. Um, and no one on that side of the spectrum has really said anything um, to that caliber, especially not the right side of the spectrum. And I don't think we'll ever get it out of them. But um, I think it was that sentence alone to me set a big tone of like, we're not like, we know this shit doesn't work. We aren't going to keep catering to big corporations and we're not going to give corporate daddy all of our money anymore. It's going to start, like, it's going to come back to the people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's mm -hmm. how we fix this economy that has been up, down, side to side. A literal Dogecoin is somehow making people tens of thousands of dollars. Like what the fuck is happening? <laughs> Good reference. Um, you're also, I think you're right. Like when you give power to more people, like versus a few at the top, like 
you know, you're spreading some of the economic risk around, you know, at least from what I understand with my very limited knowledge of all of this stuff. So I thought that that was a big moment too, and fairly progressive of him, you know. Um, Kirk, I don't know if, if you had kind of a favorite speech. I know you, or a favorite moment of the speech. I know you said you kind of like tuned in and tuned out a bit. And yeah, I caught up on it this morning, but I think that one of my favorite moments was Ted Cruz sleeping. But um, other than that, and then the meme that um, St. Hoax on Instagram posted, I don't know if anyone saw it, of Kylie Jenner on yeah. his shoulder where she's singing Rise and Shine. And he like comes out of his sleep, which I thought was funny. But I also think I thought about it from like a perspective of if Trump was speaking and a, like a liberal was, or like a Democrat senator or whoever, a Democrat audience member had fallen asleep, we would have been like, yeah, you better sleep. It's a terrible speech. So I think it's, it is all perspective when I was like shitting on Ted Cruz. I was like, if this was like, I don't know, Pete Buttigieg, like I would have been like, oh yeah, like I'm glad he's sleeping. I had a lot about that. But anyway, I think one line that we should look at, there was about, um, which I think we should hold him to this one because it'll be interesting to see. And I know we've heard some allusions to it prior to this speech. After 20 years of valiant valor and sacrifice, it's time to bring those troops home. Biden said of the American troop presence in Afghanistan and he then, you know, made a commitment to doing so before September 11th, which we've heard before. Um, recently, but it was interesting to see him say it on, you know, such a larger platform to all of Americans, right? And I think it's a commitment that I think both sides kind of hope he we can we can accomplish. So I think it's something, um, regardless if it was Joe Biden or not, whoever had said this, whatever president said, I think we should hold that person accountable to doing so. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if that happens. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I thought it was a very, I think he made a lot of bold statements like that last night that I wasn't really expecting him to make, whether it was that, um, where he did like a shout out, which I've seen all over, you know, our the, the feeds that we follow. I'm sure all four of us have seen this, but about, um, you know, a shout out to kind of the trans community, which I think was very small, but also very large at the same time. I think he had a lot of moments like that, which was, um, I would argue way more, there was a lot of more progressive moments than an Obama speech, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, and not something I necessarily thought would happen with um, something that he, Joe Biden would speak about in his first 100 days. Um, to the country so that I think I, I really was pleasantly, I think, and you said in the beginning, Paul, pleasantly surprised with the tone and all the things that he kind of, that he talked about and, and, and took over in that speech. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I think that you, you shared that um, there were a lot of progressive moments. Um, you know, he, he very boldly and loudly claimed about minimum wage being $15. Um, that puts a lot of pressure, I think, on the people in those seats, um, you know, Democrats and, and primarily Republicans to at least raise it somewhere, you know? Um, I thought that that was like kind of great, although he didn't necessarily talk about how he was gonna do that. It was tied to this kind of larger theme of, um, you know, working together and and putting the people first and not necessarily like make America great again, because that's not the vibe that we got. Um, but he had phrases in there that was like healing America, rescuing America, coming out stronger, you know, something that more meets the moment rather than I feel like what make America great again is like a kind of cry to something that that we can't feel as young people. We don't know what that means. America, you know, the America that we've seen is not something great from what we understand. We've been in war since all of us here on this podcast were, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Um, and it's interesting, I think, that you brought up the the comment about transgender people because kind of shifting gears a little bit, that's actually something I felt that was sort of missing from the speech. Um, you know, I think it was a big moment that's important for visibility, um, you know, for support of the transgender community. Um, 
my reaction was a little bit different and I kind of rolled my eyes. Um, and maybe I'm just such a skeptic. So I, I like fully agree with you, Kirk, in that it was a big moment. It was an important moment, but I kind of wanted him to go in a little bit. No. More. Yeah. And I think what I was, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I think one of the things is that I seeing it removed from the speech, like I saw it first like on Instagram or on Twitter from all different accounts that I follow that fall into that space. It was very like every every comment was like so positive and like amazing. He said this, and when I watched the actual speech, I was like, "Well, that's literally all he said." <laughs> like, it's yeah, not like he, yeah. Right, like, I thought, right. was, "Oh, he like went into this, like he didn't." Which I mean, I agree with you. At, at the same time, it's like I think it was a missed opportunity, but at the same time, like, well, he did say it, and like a lot of other, well, no one else has ever said it actually. So right. it's kind of, right. but exactly. Yeah, in like, time, being a the the um, liberals that we are <laughs> to to hold him accountable to be like, well, we're at this point in time where it should be more than just that. Um, yeah, I don't think yeah. like accepting that and like freaking out about it is maybe the right reaction, but I don't want to take care of people that are more or closer to that than I am, that, that that's their right to, to, to be happy about it, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I, I think it's right. Like, and it's not, not any of us, you know, right. as cisgender people to say, you know, that it's good or bad, there's going to be mixed reactions within the transgender community. I'm sure, um, you know, from my perspective as a member of the queer community, my hope was can he talk about the 33 bills that are in Congress right now? Can right. he talk about the fact that we need to fight against these attacks? I'm like fucking tired of it. You know, again, only be, and I'm only tired of it because we heard this during the campaign. We heard this during the debates from all of the candidates, it, you know? So it's like, now you're here. I want you to do something a little bit more about it. And he talked about passing the Equality Act. Like, I would yeah. love to see that act passed. Dear God, because Republicans are already ramping up, you know, the the religious defense, you know, they're already getting ready. They were salivating. They were waiting for him to do it last night. Um, but you're you're right. It, it can be a big moment, but also a moment that we need to improve, I think, all at once. And I'm curious, Andrew, like if there was something that you also thought kind of was was missing. I think overall, it was a fantastic speech. All of my friends who have seen it were all saying that it exceeded their expectations. And he really nailed it. And he talked about so much. I think the the whole thing was 70 minutes. um, And he hit pretty much every issue. The one for me that I thought that it would have been nice to see something a little bit different from an American politician was immigration. So he did talk about immigration Mm -hmm. and he talked Mm -hmm. about his immigration plan, but he didn't really, he didn't acknowledge at all what's happening at the border right now. Um, And that is something that has so much misinformation about it. You're hearing everything's okay from the left side of the political spectrum. And then on the right side, you hear that it's a complete meltdown. It's a total disaster. The truth is somewhere in between. Obviously, as soon as Trump is out of office, that's going to embolden people to want to come to America because now they feel, they probably feel like they're a little more welcome here. So it makes total sense that there would be an influx, but how we are handling that influx is the issue. And I think, again, we can fully understand that in 100 days, less than 100 days, um, you can't just change everything that's happening at the border. But what would have been fantastic is you, you almost never hear an American politician say, hey, I was wrong or I need to do mm-hmm. better. And at least an acknowledgement of, hey, we did not do great with immigration during the Obama administration, which I was a big part of. We certainly did not do great uh, over the last four years, over the last administration, but also, you know, like, hey, we need to do better. And he kind of punted it. He talked about his immigration bill, 
which is all fine and good, but the angle he kind of took was, um, well, it's now in Congress's hands and it's on Congress to pass this. And like, I did my thing. I introduced this bill. Like I said, I was going to now the ball's in your court and you know, yes and no. He, he, I, it just would have been to me a very powerful gesture to say, Hey, I know I kind of fumbled here. I could have done better and I'm going to do better. I agree. Um, you know, that that's, I think because for all of us, I think on this podcast, like immigration is a huge issue. And I think um, for all of the damage that Trump did, he also spotlighted a lot of things that have been wrong for a really long time. Um, and I'm in a sense, like grateful for the administration for being so horrible so that we could see some of the everyday horror on top of what he built. And, and I think you're right. There was a moment to address immigration a little bit stronger. There's a moment to admit a little bit of vulnerability, although he can't say, this is my fault because he never would do that, you know, because that'll be played on Fox news for forever. You know, you can expend some political energy, not just saying the balls in your court Congress, but the balls just not in your court. This is a humanitarian issue that we as leaders of this country need to take responsibility for. It's your job. People hired you to do it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, right. Like, add a little bit more fuel than just saying, I passed this plan. I think it's a great plan, honestly. But my my reactions were the same as yours. Or just It, it was a great speech. Um, there were just things I kind of thought we could have went a little bit more on, you know? I was happy he didn't spend the whole time talking about COVID, right? Like that would have been exhausting and depressing. Um, but <laughs> he, he really made, I think, a lot of strides. Um, any kind of final thoughts on this before we take a quick break? I'm just glad it's not Trump. I know. Fuck that, man. So glad you finally said that, Andrew, because convinced otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When we come back, we'll talk about, you know, the biggest proposal facing the Senate right now, which is the American Jobs Plan. All right. So President Joe Biden has unveiled the second part of his Build Back Better agenda, and that's the American Jobs Plan. It is focused on upgrading and repairing America's physical infrastructure, investing in manufacturing, research and development. And it's also all about expanding long-term health care services. So we are expected to kind of like hear more about this as the bill is being drafted right now. But right now, the kind of tentative part um, is that the plan has approximately a $2.6 trillion price tag and some of the new costs. Um, We're going to talk a little bit later about how he's going to pay for that and everything. Um, But the plan appears to be deficit neutral over 15 years is what some of the um, experts are estimating right now. So um, we're going to kind of break this down as it relates to fiscal responsibility, commitment to the American people, um, what it's doing for rural and urban Americans. Um, And Andrew, I would love to go to you first, um, and then we'll kind of go down the line, all sharing sort of our our favorite parts of this bill and what might be some good talking points for people when they're talking to their families about this plan. Yeah, well, it's called the jobs plan. And all throughout this entire plan, repeatedly unions and collective bargaining are mentioned. Um, There isn't necessarily one section that's like unions are good or collective bargaining is good. It's just repeated throughout every single section of the plan where we're going to have 
jobs for electric vehicle manufacture, where we're going to have jobs for building homes for the poor people in the middle class, where they're going to have jobs for clean energy, where they're going to have broadband jobs, um, internet infrastructure jobs. Every single section talks about the importance of unions, the need for unions, and the rights of workers to collectively bargain and join a union. Um, I think that's good because certainly that is something that has been missing from pretty much every single American uh, presidential administration for decades and decades, for administration after administration. Um, It's just something that since like the 80s, 70s, 80s has just fallen out of favor and Year after year after year, the the share of American workers that are in unions falls and the ability for workers to join unions becomes harder and harder and harder. I mean, we've seen that just in the last couple of months where um, we've kind of become aware. I mean, a lot of us knew already that Amazon warehouses were horrible places to work, um, but that sort of came into the collective consciousness Everybody was ordering from Amazon during the pandemic. It was sort of like a meme that Amazon was keeping the country afloat. And then more and more people kind of came aware that in Amazon warehouses, it's just horrible to work. And these are people that are essential workers. They didn't get to have time off. They didn't get to work from home. They had tried to unionize in a couple of the warehouses and just got shut down. Obviously, Amazon's going to stop that at all costs. I think unions and a market-based economy can coexist. If leftists want to come for me for saying that, so be it. But we're not going to get to owning the means of production next year, right? That's a process that's going to take several administrations, decades probably. So to have an American president be at least acknowledging the need for unions and at least acknowledging that people should be able to join them rather than out and out attacking unions. I mean, the share of American workers in unions is so low, but the Republicans go so fucking hard on bashing unions all the time. It's like at this point, you're just you're kicking them while they're down and they've Mm -hmm. been down. Agreed. Yeah. Um, I think that that's going to be a really important conversation and also something that, you know, if people want us to talk more about, I would love to do it. Um, I feel like I don't specialize in workers' rights or unions. Um, I've, I've, you know, my parents taught me from a very young age that unions were bad. So, you know, I like am very ignorant, I think, on this issue. So if it's something that, you know, you guys want to hear more about, please let us know. We're happy to do it and maybe bring on, you know, an expert to talk about it. Um, you know, uh, Kirk, what is yours? Cause I know that yours is also tied to some of that sort of income inequality and some of the disadvantages that persist, you know, within, uh, lower income communities. So what, what are some of your favorite parts about the American jobs plan? Yeah. So I think one of them is definitely it's around, you know, that reduced inequality and assist disadvantaged communities. Um, I think one of the things I found most interesting, and obviously there's all different types of disadvantaged communities, right? Like you can talk from, I think when people say that they think of one specific thing, but I think it just, you could speak from middle of the country to every coast of the country, to a city, to the rural, everywhere. There's a bunch of different, different kinds of disadvantaged communities. We're all different, different politically aligned, I think, which is also interesting. But um, one of the things I found most interesting, it's not saying it's my favorite part of it, but I think it's an interesting part for um, people to pay attention to, especially those who maybe don't completely uh, align with Joe Biden or align with Democrats or align with liberals or want to believe that they're trying to help them in, in this situation too, um, is one kind of relying around disadvantaged communities that kind of fall under that 
community that rely more on the fossil fuel type of area and looking into the plan to see how it proposes. And I'm going to be, this is not me, I'm reading. So <laughs> I think that helps people understand better, that helps me understand as well. But the plan proposes an immediate investment of $16 billion in plugging oil and gas wells and restoring and reclaiming abandoned coal, hard rock and uranium mines, as well as a $5 billion investment in rehabilitation in brownfield and Superfund sites. So basically that would mean, um, which research has showed in the past few years that plugging up places like that, I think there's over 500,000 wells could create up to 120,000 jobs out of a cost between 12 and $24 billion, meaning that over the last few years, the oil and gas industry has lost over 100,000 jobs. So if you think about it, if in the last year or so, you've lost over 100,000 jobs and this plugging up of these wells and, and creating other jobs would create more than 100,000 jobs. So actually 120,000 jobs on average. So, um, you know, these this plan actually would put newer, different jobs, which I think we have to be more open to in these areas where it's understood that taking away some of these things, um, whether it be oil and gas in, the, in those industries, um, taking away those jobs, um, we're all, they're also willing to, or not willing, they're going to put put different jobs in with those people to have different jobs. So it's kind of like a lifeline almost to those fossil fuel workers, right? And I think yeah. that that's something that isn't talked enough about um, I'm not saying that was or wasn't something that Donald Trump wanted to do or didn't want to do. I'm just saying in, in this plan, I just think it's interesting. It's speaking to a group of people that literally didn't vote for him. <laughs> and I'm, and that, right. that's the point of a president. So I think that assuming he sticks to this and and, and everyone who's working on this sticks to this, um, that would be a good thing, obviously, for people that are. It's, it's a good example to me of like being a whole America as opposed to um, just opposing someone just because. And that's what I think that um, those people should maybe look at, look deeper into a plan like this to see what's actually being, how they actually could benefit from it. Yeah. Instead, instead, they're just seeing, oh, actually you're removing um, fossil fuel jobs because it's so bad for this environment and climate change. And that's bullshit. But actually, no, it's we're going to give you different jobs or different opportunities or more jobs or more opportunity to make more money. And maybe we'll put you in a union that you can have right. some bargaining power so that you can, you know, fight back against your employer because you can't do that now. Like, right. I think you're, I think you're completely right, and I think you're, you're hitting on a point that I, I find really exciting about this bill. It is representative of all America, and it is, you know, not like, you know, it's so different than Trump's like war yeah. on blue states. You know, like you know, lazy Californians rely on government aid, the blue state bailout. None of this fucking shit is in this bill. And mm. that just makes me so happy. Um, not just because I think it's the right thing to do morally, um, but it also just shows that like Joe Biden or the team around him have a good understanding of some of the issues that face America. And that's why my favorite part of the bill is about bringing broadband access to rural America. 35% um, you know, of people don't have you know, broadband access. They don't have acceptable speeds. And it's kind of unbelievable um, you know, because we all live in the suburbs or the city. Um, and at the same time, like it's, it's, it's not unbelievable because Democrat, Republicans, all presidents have failed rural voters in so many ways. Um, I think Republicans just sometimes do a better job of making these voters angry, but it wasn't that long ago where, you know, these people were pretty strong Democrats. And there's a lot of reasons as to why I think they've moved away. Um, you know, but but part of I think what could be really exciting about this is when you think about rural America getting access to high-speed broadband internet at an affordable price that is competitive with the rest of the market, 
mom and pops can sell online now. Their business just goes, you know, their reach of their business, I should say, goes so much further. When you think about access to education or virtual schooling, that person who doesn't have a good college in their home rural town can go to school online and effectively e-learn. And um, that is something that's really exciting too. They don't have to pay these massive fees to live on campus at these state universities. Um, Also expanded telehealth. I mean, if you have broadband internet, you can meet with your doctor. Um, We all know and have heard a lot of the issues, especially in states like Georgia, um, you know, that telehealth is really the way of the future because they've closed so many rural hospitals because the funding's not there. So think about like jobs and training, all of the other things that would come to these areas. Like, you know, I, I was reading this one article from an advocacy organization that was like, things like graphic design, video production, photography, artistry, fashion, all of those are, are city jobs for the most part. So that's why you see people go to LA, go to New York, because it's like, those are the only places where those programs exist. But if you have internet, you know, you can learn some of those things online or you can take classes in them. So it's it, it, like, it just stretches so far, you know, I think for rural America um, and not to mention too, uh, you know, the one advocacy group I saw was like uh, farmers and planning the weather and getting access to like the national weather service so they can effectively plant their crops and they can effectively like, you know, shield and water. And all that. I was like, I, who would have ever thought about that as a challenge? I'm sure there's a lot of farmers out there who like instinctually they're very good at it, but these massive, I mean, acres and acres of land, like if you don't have some of the data intelligence to access the weather information, the trends that you can effectively treat your crops, like this is revolutionary, I think. So, you know, I was, I was reading somewhere that like not every home in rural America had electricity until the 1930s. That's embarrassing, you know? And now that it's 2021 and for these people not to have broadband internet, you know, I think like selfishly as a liberal, I'm like, oh, maybe they can like also like learn some new things online, but like maybe they'll fall into QAnon. But like at the same time, like I'm like really excited about the possibility. I think this brings for people that maybe didn't have these possibilities before. And at the same time, like it might not affect some of the people alive now, but if you grow up in a rural community that has access to broad the broadband speed internet, you know, and, and it's reliable, you might stay in that community. You might not move to the city or not move to the suburbs. Maybe you're happy where you are because you can pursue some of your dreams locally. So I'm like all about this shit. I think it's something that all of us could should be able to get behind. Um, Andrew, I know that that was kind of like part of your like uh, initial favorite part of the American jobs plan. So definitely want to like go over to you if you have anything to like kind of fill in some of the blanks. We're all pretty privileged to hear that number. I didn't know it was 35% or close to 35%. That's an insanely high number of people. Um, I think that's something that would shock most listeners of this podcast. I mean, if you're listening to a podcast, you have internet because (laughs) that's how you you get a podcast. And in my day-to-day life, I don't, I take it for granted. And then how do you feel when you don't have internet for some reason or your router resets in the middle of a work call? Like you feel helpless. Like it's just part of modern life now. And the way that we're going to continue to move ahead as a country um, and as a, as the world is technology. We have more and more people. We have to feed more and more people. We have to make sure that those people's lives are better than they were in the last generation and the previous generation. Technology is going to be the only way we can do that. I'm a huge proponent of technology 
all of that needs to run on internet. Just as you were mentioning things that people would probably never think of. I mean, everything now is connected to the internet and we take it for granted. People have refrigerators that connect to the mm-hmm. internet. We literally, we literally like, I need an internet detox. Like that's where yeah. we are. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And to think that like to, to make your farm more effective and to continue to make money in an industry that's all already super hard and very low margin um, to have that technological edge or to not have it could be make or break in the next decade. It's, I mean, it's quite literally like unfair. Like you can, yeah. Yeah. whether we like it or not, which is the apology point of this like social media or in internet detox, which is uh, like a big percentage of the internet now is social media, but um, it's completely changed almost every industry. The fact that there are parts of this country, the greatest country on earth, that doesn't have access to essentially the world is mind-boggling because it's like they're living in a time which I'm not, and people can argue mentally what's better or whatever, whatever, that's a whole other conversation, but it's just like the fear, the, the, the mere fact of having an income kind of relies on that as well in a lot of aspects. Like you are just disadvantaged and behind because you don't have access to the world. Listening to you guys talk, was, that's kind of how I just got so passionate about it because I was like, that's just fucked up. Like, like I never really think about it because I've never had to worry about it. I've only had to worry about thinking about not having it because I don't want it by privilege. Um, I think it's something that's crazy that there is a large amount of people in this country that don't, and obviously around the world as well, but in a country like this that doesn't, that don't, that doesn't have access, is just, it's mind-boggling. Agreed. I'll say like, I'm pretty plugged in considering where I work. And I'm saying this as I'm getting a notification saying my internet connection is unstable. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Um, But I will say it's this concept of expanding um, broadband access to rural areas is not new. Um, There have been plenty of major cable conglomerates that have invested their own money into it. Um, And everyone's like smiling and winking because it's you can put two and two together, but our opinions are separate. Um, but it's it's one of those things where having that additional um, push from the government really can be the thing that makes a difference, right? For a company to install fiber optic wires, like there's things that have to get done. There's approvals that have to be made. And so really this can also help with getting rid of those barriers to entry that already existed. Um, so I think it's it's definitely one of those things that's getting us towards the right direction. And I think it's going to be that thing that keeps that starts to unite us a little bit more, because now I can have conversations with, you know, cousin Junebug and them in Bugaloosa, Mississippi, who's never even heard, don't even know what five yeah, is or yeah. <laughs> even stands for. So I think it's it's definitely a move in the right direction. And I I also think that it'll bring a little bit more appeal to people in the city who maybe want to go rural. Cause I think it's also, that's, it's not for me, but it is for people. And now it's a more viable Completely. option. That's, that's also really good. That is a really good point too. Of like people who want to not be in the city and not have to go to the suburbs, also just move in the middle of the freaking country and not have to worry about being completely turned away from society and also not able to make money <laughs> that, that that's just what it is comes down to i think is the fact that like you literally are disadvantaged economically by not having the internet yeah 
there's a right wing meme that kind of goes along with climate change and everything where they're saying that, oh, we're going to get rid of all of these blue collar jobs. We're going to get rid of all these oil and gas jobs. We're going to, with automation coming in, um, we're going to get rid of all these factory jobs and skilled labor jobs with automation. And the meme is that Democrats think, oh, you should just learn to code. And they're, it's kind of true and it's it's kind of not like there there is truth to that where we can't just like get rid of these jobs and then what do those people do there needs to be something for them to do but also as we go along yes automation is going to take over um we can't really stop that that's just the way of the future um and there are going to be jobs certain types of jobs lost and not everybody is going to be able to retrain as a, a solar technician or a wind turbine technician or what have you um this is going to open up knowledge worker jobs right that people in rural areas traditionally i, I just don't understand why there needs to be this bifurcation of like you live in the city, you're a knowledge worker. You live somewhere out in the rural part of the country, you're a blue collar worker. And there's always these divisions we've said it before. Like <laughs> we kind of have the common enemy, which is like big corporations and right. money, just not caring about the vast majority of Americans. Like this is going to give us all of us that advantage that we need. If there's some kid in the middle of Missouri that would much rather learn a, a technology job, but you know, that's not available to them. So they have to go work um, in an oil field or work on a farm or something, you know, not to say one job is better than the other because all jobs are, are good jobs and we need them all right now, but it just opens up choice and yeah, it yeah. opens up the ability for the country to move in those directions in the future that we need to move um, and do it in such a way that doesn't harm other Americans. Yeah. Agreed. And I think, you know, we, we've definitely talked about the, this kind of dichotomy and the, the, the benefit of investing in rural America. But, you know, Erica, there's there's parts of the bill from like an urban perspective that, that you're really passionate about, too. Um, so what are some talking points that you would give to those Democrats who live in inner cities and maybe have, you know, Republican friends and family? So there's at least two big parts that stuck out to me, and one is over modernizing public transit, and then the other one is around repairing roads and bridges. So um, a figure that comes directly from the White House is traffic congestion costs to this country as a whole $160 billion a year, which is nuts, right? And then on top of that, us as tax or us as individuals are losing $1,000 a year to wasted time, fuel, fuel, and the like. That doesn't include whatever fucking two-bedroom apartment-sized potholes are sitting on 95. Um, so the goal is to include $20 billion to to improve this, which is crazy. $20 billion could help save $160 billion, and then 1000 to each of us motorists. Um, and so that's something that it really does impact everyone. If you work in the city, but you're commuting um, from New Jersey or whatever, we've all been on the Ben Franklin. It's mm -hmm. not great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of a mess. Um, and that also includes highways. And then he even said they even mentioned main streets. Um, so, again, we're kind of getting into these 
smaller, more rural areas. And that's, it's something that impacts all of us. We all have to get on the freeway at some point. Um, and so I think from that sense, it is, we're all in this together, but even looking at public transportation, I mean, anyone who's been on a SEPTA train knows it's a mess. Um, and that's, I'll be honest, when it comes to returning to the office, that is my number one concern is public transit. Uh, it, it was built however long ago and we're kind of suffering from the fact that when some of these things were built, the population size was nowhere near where it was supposed to be. Um, anyone who's been on the Market Frankfurt line or the L um, is very much aware about how much of a nightmare it can be, delays, breakdowns. Um, and so that does benefit urban areas because for some people, public transit is their only mm -hmm. form of transit. And when we start to expand access and we expand the functionality of it, that really puts us in a much better place. And on top of that, there's, uh, I think, $80 billion invested um, for freight transit. So we're talking like your Amtraks. We know Joe loves Amtrak, so. <laughs> Joe was like, put Amtrak in the bill. <laughs> you know, it's so funny when I was like designing a post recently for my page, I like went onto his brand's like color palette and the name of the gray that his team uses like is called Amtrak Gray. <laughs> You know, I'll give it to Joe Biden. He's a loyal yeah. mother. Like, I can't say what Black Twitter calls him, but he's yeah. earned that name. Yeah. And then on top of that, we're talking improvements on ports, uh, waterways and airports. So really, it's something that impacts all of us. It impacts people who, you know, have the benefit of being able to drive their own car, people who have the benefit of being able to travel or broader, even within the country. Um, so overall, it saves everyone time and it saves everyone money and everyone has to get in a car or buggy for our Amish listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, at, and then a majority of us have to take public transportation. So it's really something that Yes, it does address urban areas because urban areas are very dense in population. And they, as we've seen in this election, they really do represent a major part of this country. And if we're going to refuse to represent them when it comes to the Electoral College, we should at least give them fair access and affordable access and reliable access to transportation. You said that. But yes, so um, I, I think that, you know, we've successfully unpacked our favorite parts about the American Jobs Plan. I'm super excited to watch the debate happen in Congress um, because this is a bill that is broadly popular with the American electorate. I think it's something like 65 to 67 percent of people in recent polling have said that they support it. To Erica's point, you know, everybody drinks water, everybody, you know, uses the roads, everybody needs internet, you know, workers like to be protected from their boss, unionized or not, you know, all of these things are very, very popular with the American people. So um, you're going to have to, though, fight some of those talking points, because the number one question everybody who listens to this podcast and talks about this is going to get asked is, well, how is he going to pay for it? And 
we'll talk about that in our next segment when we'll talk about that in the future, but just get ready. Cause that's going to be kind of one of the first questions that you're going to get. So we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, pack it up. All right, everybody, welcome back to our final segment of the episode. This is Pack It Up, where we tell a person, a place, or a political organization to exit stage left, do not collect your carry-on luggage, and exit through the emergency door in front of you. This week, I am saying pack it up to every single human being who has questioned how Joe Biden is going to pay for the American Rescue Plan, pay for the American Jobs Plan, and pay for the American Family Plan. And it's not just the people who are questioning, because I do believe that we need to effectively question how we are going to pay for these plans. But if you just say there's no way to pay for this without offering any suggestions, I'm going to lose my mind. So there are four ways right now where we know that Joe Biden is going to pay for the American Rescue Plan. It's raising taxes on the wealthy. It's raising the capital gains tax. It's raising taxes on corporations and then beefing up IRS audits so that we can capture people who are committing tax fraud. And y'all know I love Isaac Saul from Tangle, but even he recently closed out a newsletter by saying the math just doesn't add up. It's a five-year budget for a 10-year plan. And he's right. He is right. I will. I, the math does not add up. And I love Isaac. I love Tangle, but I want to hear solutions out of him. I want to hear solutions from CNN, the New York Times. I want to hear it from the Wall Street Journal, not the editorial board, because Jesus Christ, the editorial board is literally full of QAnon supporters. But I want to hear people get bolder about this stuff. I want to hear people contextualize this stuff. I want to hear some nuance to this stuff. So I'm going to go full progressive for a moment. And I don't often indulge in my progressive side on this podcast. But I think that the progressive talking points here are the right one. In order to pay for these plans, number one, defund the military because the United States has the largest budget in the entire world and it increased 4.4% from 2019 to 2020, even during a global pandemic. Number two, end the war in Afghanistan and Iraq to reallocate the budget to pay for the families plan. In total, it has cost us $6.4 trillion on wars since 2001. That would pay for all of these plans and more. Number three, forgive student loan debt to increase the spend power of the middle class. That student loan debt is at $1.8 trillion right now. If you forgive that money, that's going to come back into the economy faster than you can forgive it. Number four, implement a progressive capital gains tax so that the highest earners pay a wealth tax. This is the Elizabeth Warren wealth tax plan where households would pay an annual 2% tax on all assets, net worth above $50 million and 3% tax on every dollar of net worth above $1 billion. That is expected to bring in $2 trillion in funding. Although some experts, I will say, do say that that might not be an accurate number. Number five, make access to community college more affordable, but bolster the education so that it's, it's just as competitive as some of these private institutions too. If we don't send people into debt in the first place, then we won't have to deal with the debt crisis coming out. The sixth one is investing in the clean energy. We have talked about that at length in this episode. And number seven, lucky number seven, is divest federal police 
funding, which is $114 billion annually, reinvest that money in lower cost solutions for community care, in mentoring programs in low income neighborhoods, and stop having the police called for every single event and emergency. I'm not saying that we need to solve all of these issues. I'm not saying that all of these things can be implemented. And it's not, of course, just, you know, like those media outlets that I call that have wrote this. The only effective coverage I have seen on this so far is CNBC of all the different things that we could do to pay for these plans. And no one wants to have that conversation. No one wants to offer any solution. They just want to say the price tag is too expensive. So to those people who say that without any evidence to back it up, pack it the fuck up. <laughs> I think I'm a progressive now. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, if all of your money goes into your rough country truck lift kit and your blue tinted Oakleys and not into the stock market, then you cannot complain about capital gain tax. Enough, enough. Also, if you have a fucking issue with something, complaining has never done anything for anybody. Maybe everyone just needs a week with my fucking mother. She will tell you real quick, stop complaining and do something. Cause it's frustrating, right? All it does is stir up doubt and dissent for quite literally no reason. And then the only outcome is that everyone is worse off than they were before. Like, I don't pay, like, we don't pay firefighters to look at a fire and be like, oh, that looks bad. And then fucking walk <laughs> away. Let's. If you listened last week, you heard us talking about climate change and you heard us say that we have procrastinated way too long. We're at the deadline. We have to act now. And that is why it's this insurmountable task. It is the same thing with this. If you say we can't pay for this, then you're basically admitting that those things and the jobs plan shouldn't be done or they don't need to be done. I don't think you can find anybody that can really fully admit, honestly, that those are things that shouldn't be done. I mean, you want to talk about a narrative? You want to talk about a them? It's the corporations that don't want to fucking pay their taxes. It's the super fucking wealthy people that don't want to pay their taxes. They're telling you to say that. You know, all of us on this podcast and the average American, you're not making capital gains taxes like that. Fuck it. We, we just need to tax those people. We need to tax the wealth. Eat the rich. Eat the rich. <laughs> Eat the rich. I think, I think, I think all of our listeners just said, I am Antifa. <laughs> I think, I'm, like, I think, I think we might be socialists now. <laughs> might, might. First of all, babe, I would, yes. Like what? <laughs> Where's the argument? You know, I'm, oppo I'm opposed to this and I'm one of those rich people. So I'm just. Well, like, we said we were going to pack it up, Kirk. So everyone clap your hands. Pack it up, Kirk. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, man. Well, I got to go. So uh, who's next? <laughs> I would like this, this person to politely pack it all the way up. Oh, I know who it is. Republican senator from oh. South Carolina, Mr. Tim motherfucking <laughs> Scott. I knew it. I knew it. You woke up today and you weren't telling this man to pack it the fuck up. <laughs> you need to pack yourself the fuck up. Put yourself and you carry on and get the fuck out because this was just like unreal. Am I right? Like it, was, it was unreal. It was, it was, I don't know how long was the speech? 15, 20 minutes? I don't know how long. Um, for those who don't know, Tim Scott from South Carolina was appointed by the um, GOP to be their spokesperson to be the rebuttal to President Biden's speech. 
usually a rebuttal. The purpose of that is to speak about what the president just spoke about to an extent. You know, you're it's could you're you're talking, you're rebuting what, what they were saying. This man stood up there and spoke mainly about how this country is not racist. <laughs> My phone just fell. <laughs> He's so mad. He's so mad. He's so mad. Your He's phone fell for you. Phone. I'm throwing shit. How this country is not racist. In the same breath of saying, and I'm air quoting this, progressives consistently call him Uncle Tom or Uncle Tim, because his name is Tim Scott, and the N-word on social media. In the same breath of him saying that, he said this country is not racist. So he's saying people are calling him these things, but this country is not racist. Pick your battle, Tim. By the way, not once did any that I know of in Joe Biden's speech, did he say America was a racist country? That was not the purpose of the president's speech. He didn't sit there and say it was. However, I think most of us know, and I think you go on and look and see a plethora of Democratic leaders who will out- outwardly say that this country has racist issues and has it ha- is embedded in racism. There's systematic racism everywhere you go, systemic racism. Racism. Um, but that had nothing to do with what was being spoken about for the most part with Joe Biden's speech. But this man got on television and he spoke to his party's base so he could tell them exactly what they wanted to hear after hearing things that they, I guess, chose not to want to hear, um, which, again, had nothing really to do overall about just racism. So in my opinion, you know, he's, he goes on there and he's playing this role of the black man who makes white people feel comfortable. And if I'm wrong for saying that, sue me. Yeah, I think <laughs> but I believe might. that is true. He is. Erica, can cannot you agree or disagree? I, I think say, that's what like that's that's a thing though. Like there's this like, ooh, I'm not like I'm not gonna say what I wanna say, but it, it's like I'm I'm the good one. Like I'm not- Well that's why is that not why they put him up there to speak probably the only I mean, black Republican senator. Which speaks to our country <laughs> being racist. Like, like what? Like if you can't even there, see that. And there's what, two representatives yeah, so anyway, in the house that are Republican and black. He's literally, literally the Republicans shit. token. Yeah. And they put him up there. Yeah. Yeah. When Joe Biden did not talk about race. But he also wasn't put up, oh, which is a whole other thing we get into. But yeah. Right. But the reason they put him up there was to review what he was, what Joe Biden was saying. But the truth is they put him up there not to do that. They put him up there and he put himself up there to do one thing, which is to soothe the country's racial guilt. And that, that is what, or the, that base is racial guilt in saying, oh, there is a man who isn't white speaking as from our party about how you, yeah, there isn't racism because here I am standing telling you there isn't. So it was just like a very, it was just like not what I was expecting. Maybe I should have expected that after, after the speech, but I just was like, this is coming out of left field, but at the same time it isn't. And he also talked about all of the Georgia voter suppression situation. And he's saying how it's easier to vote there in Georgia um, than in places like democratic places like New York or other States like that. Um, but the left doesn't want, he said, the left doesn't want you to know that. And it's like, he conveniently left out all of the places in the bill where it suppresses predominantly black areas and criminalizes handing out freaking food and water, water to voters and all that kind of stuff. Like he conveniently left out a lot and just said, oh no, it's actually going to help people unlike places like New Which York is where it's democratically a run. bold faced lie. And you know Not what? True. Republicans love to do this. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think Democrats have been very guilty of this as well. Um, I would say it's like parading around the minority members of their party. And Republicans are the first ones to 
call that out at the Democratic National Convention, them being like, oh, the, the DNC, Joe Biden is just like Joe Biden, and all these black people, Joe Biden and all these other people, all these the, the trips around to the 50 states of being united despite being separated during COVID. I mean, Republicans on Reddit, Republicans on Facebook were absolutely trashing that type of visible diversity. But then at the same time, at the Republican National Convention, which if we all remember was um, eight nights of speeches capstoned by the Trump people and um, Kimberly, whatever best her name is, is make America come. great again, the Garfoyle. best is yet to come. Um, you know, they had Nikki Haley come and speak. They had Tim Scott come and speak and they had Nikki Haley go out there and say the same thing. The first governor from South Carolina, one of the first woman governors of, of Indian descent say, you've been told America is a racist country. I'm here, you know, as a person of color to tell you, no, it's not. This is like the oldest trick in the book to make white yeah. Republican people who are like, I'm not really racist, I don't think, be like, yeah, I'm not, because this person's telling me. It is embarrassing. It is, you know, so insulting to the intelligence of Republican voters. And you should be able to look right past that and look at who is actually elected, who has the diverse cabinet, who is making sure that people of color are at, are at the forefront of as many decisions as possible. This is not to say that Joe Biden is perfect. It's not to say that his administration is perfect. It is to say that he should have talked more about race, but damn, like it's so obvious and so calculated. And I think we should be more comfortable calling that out as white people, frankly, because I I went on Twitter and I saw every black person I follow being like Tim Scott. Here he comes, you know. I mean, it's also it's also like in the words. It's obviously embarrassing, but also like you just said. I, I'm blanking on the word. What you just said about Republicans? Well, um, it's insulting. Yeah. It's insulting. Insulting to Republicans. It's also insulting to like Tim Scott, unless he like. Is, and I understand like he's like choosing to do this, but at the same time, like dude, like these people are out here picking you to do this for a specific reason you're like falling for the trap essentially i'm sure you to play into it but it's insulting to people yeah. minorities as well mm -hmm. to think that you're gonna we think by putting him up there or someone like that up there we're gonna get people mm -hmm. like that to then listen because and i understand democrats fall for it too i mean nancy pelosi was in the fucking <laughs> kneeling in whatever the she was wearing i mean so it's not to say democrats don't <laughs> oh my god right. fucking cloth. yo democrats do it and too, we'll also call but it's that a little out. different we will call that um, out yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, we always call it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think this yeah, was just so crazy. Was, <laughs> she, it's still a yeah. meme. It's it was just still a, very a meme weird. because of how dumb it is. <laughs> it's so dumb. But this falls under that category to me, but worse because of it had nothing to do with what Joe Biden had spoke about. And then it was just, it was just so, con the whole thing was so contradictory and weird. And it was just, again, I think the best way to look at it is that he was put there and speaking there and chose to be there to soothe Yep. the racial guilt of Republicans, regardless if they're white or not, actually, but mainly white Republicans. Yeah. This is what the right is using now. Um, I mean, all along American conservatism is, is this undercurrent of like nationalism light where any criticism of the country is horrible and we can't speak bad of this country. We can't acknowledge the racist history of the country. We can't acknowledge the racism right now. And this is what they're using to galvanize those rural voters that we were talking about and just their voting base in general. You know, people who are good people who are just going about their lives, you know, they don't 
think about things in a way that we do and see the underlying issues to a lot of these things because their side doesn't educate them about, you know, all of the underlying little things about America that has made America, America. Um, and not to say blow up the entire country right now. No one is saying that, but we're saying there's a rot at the core and we need to do something about it. But what they're doing is saying, hey, the Democrats are telling you that you are a horrible racist, you're an evil person, and you don't deserve to live in this country. That's what they're telling you right now, and that is basically why they brought Tim Scott out, so that he could tell all the white voters that they're totally cool, and the Democrats are really just saying that you're bad, and they hate you, and you should just die, which is not the case. And it's so funny. It's so funny because it ties back to our earlier conversation of, you know, just like the the corporations, like the, somehow we're going to see it and we're going to come back to this episode right here, right now. We're going to see all of the Republicans vote against the American jobs plan, right? We know we're going to see oh, that. Yeah. We need to sure up support on the Democratic side and we need to pressure those, you know, moderates in the middle, like Mitt Romney, like Susan Collins, like Lisa Murkowski. We're going to need to pressure all of them to take action here. But what we're going to see is all of the Tim Scotts, all of the Lindsey Grahams, all of the Mitch McConnells, all of those people are going to vote against the American jobs plan. And they're going to say the Democrats couldn't get you free broadband, but we're going to get it for you at a really discounted price through these people that have better speeds. And you don't want government subsidies. And, you know, we need to support businesses because they employ people. And those politicians are the same people that are going to get funded by Verizon, you know, all throughout the 2022 and 2024 election cycles. And so if we don't call this bullshit out to the people in our lives that government can do more for us and that there is one party who's, you know, uh, better on race and it's because there's actually representatives uh, in the party. You know, there's this the whole thing about the, the year of the Republican woman is what they called 2020. And uh, God is that bullshit, you know? And of course there were a lot of women elected, um, but look at the Democratic Party and look at what the Democratic Party has been fighting for. Look at Joe Biden trying to pass the Violence Against Women Act for 30 fucking years in Congress, like since before I was born. We just like, uh, it's so much hypocrisy. And so I've co-opted Pack It Ups, but Pack It Up again. <laughs> Andrew, what's your Pack It Up? My Pack It Up is my favorite person in the whole entire world. No. Yes. Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> So Rudy was raided by the FBI, which you love to fucking see it. I don't want to talk about him anymore. <laughs> I will never stop talking about him. This is why he needs to pack it up because he's saying, you're not going to stop me. This is a direct quote. You're not going to stop me. You're not going to convict me of some phony crime. Listen, pack it the fuck up. Get out. You did one thing in your life. You locked up a bunch of mobsters in the late 80s and the early 90s. You did one fucking thing. And then you used 9-11 to make people think that you were a good person. And then you've just been shit throughout the entire rest of everything. Where the fuck did Rudy Giuliani come in two years ago in this administration? Why the fuck? So stupid. What the fuck? And what was he doing in the 1980s and 90s not locking up the biggest mobster, which was Donald Trump? Exactly. In the real estate, 
<laughs> the guy who was directly benefiting from all the mob ties and everything else. The raid was all about him going to the Ukraine and it's all a big smoke and mirrors that, oh, well, what about Hunter Biden in the Ukraine? Bitch, what about fucking you in the Ukraine? So you know what? Get out. We don't need the Trump administration continuing to soil the waters. And, and guess where he went tonight? He did a 10-minute interview on Tucker fucking Carlson. Of fucking course he did. That should just be my pack it up forever. Every single time we record, pack it up Tucker Carlson. I just, why does Matt Gates get the airtime? Why does Rudy Giuliani get the airtime? Why does Don Jr. get the airtime with all of these people? We fucking know why. They're part of the global cabal. Part of the global cabal. No, they're fighting the global cabal. No, that's Joe Biden. Yeah, they're patriots. Exactly. They're patriots. Didn't you see the patriotism literally leaking from Rudy's head? He tweeted 26 minutes ago and already retweeted it again. The Department of Justice told my lawyer they secretly went into my iCloud account in 2019. Who else are they spying on? You? Pack it up. Pack it up. Bye, bitch. Go to prison. <laughs> just, just please, please go to prison. <laughs> Erica, who or what are you packing up this week? And please don't let it be Tucker Carlson, Caitlyn Jenner, or Rudy Giuliani. No, I'm taking a very apolitical pack it up bullshit. today. <laughs> no, no, because this has been on my mind. This has been on my heart for so fucking long. And I recently had an experience that made it flare up like a fucking herpes infection. I need people who cannot understand that someone else's struggle is not their fucking struggle too. And this specifically goes around the body positive movement, which is everyone's like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh oh God. Oh God. We, we are about to get canceled. I feel like I should just cut the recording right now and we should just delete the entire back catalog because we're done. No, I promise you it's not as terrible as it sounds, but My thing is, yes, we have all been shamed for our body in some way, shape, or form. There is a lot of negativity around our bodies in some way, shape, or form. Look at my cat. She's chonky. I love her. (laughs) I'm only saying that because she's literally licking her butthole while I talk. But that is to say, yes, we are all affected by this one thing. But you need to realize that you can have privilege within a movement, because there are people who are made fun of because they are too thin. And that is a real thing. But you have to look at this, the fact that if I want to go shopping on a fucking Instagram boutique, I'm out of the game because they only do street sizes, small, medium, large, if I'm lucky, lucky, extra large. So when you have people who have dealt with a lifelong experience or a lifelong torturing of fat phobia, whether it be from their peers, from their family, from the media, from the fashion industry, that is not your opportunity to raise your hand and say, oh, but what about, no, shut the fuck up. Because at the end of the day, if you are a certain size, society still caters to you. And to say, And when you have someone who is speaking out about their size and speaking out about the fact that they have to go to specialty stores because they do not fit within this standard, 
you are overlapping someone who is being marginalized. And I'm fucking sick of it. I get it. We have all been told in some way, shape, or form that we are inadequate, but your inadequacies still fit with, like, you still have access. And I think, and not everyone and I, does. I think, I think you're right. And I think that there's an economic argument to be made too about that privilege is that when you buy XL or double X or triple X, those, co- those clothes often cost more than a small. And of course I empathize with those people who have experienced eating disorders and who battle some of those like feelings of anorexia. I have also struggled with that. But I also recognize Mm -hmm. that the clothes that I buy um, are not two, three, four, five dollars more expensive because they use additional fabric. So I appreciate this packet up because it's different than something, you know, I I think I've typically seen on the internet, but there is sort of like a a little bit of a movement within the body positivity movement around this stuff. Yeah. And that's to say that fits in with a lot of different things, right? Like I know within the black community, because I am not lighter skin. I am treated differently and that fucking sucks. On the flip side, because my curl pattern is a certain way, people say I have good hair. And so we can't, you have to recognize that within a movement and within a marginalized community, there are levels and some people sit at the top and they say, oh, but what about me? I'm a part of this community too, but you're sitting at the highest part of this community. And there's this really common thing that goes around that says white women and black men are one and the same. And that's because they're privileged parts of marginalized communities. Whereas yes, black men are black, but they're also men. And so they have the privilege of being a man. And white women are in fact women, but they are white and they're white. It's the same same thing as being a white gay man. We're still white men. Exactly. And you're cisgender. And, and so it's it's this thing of, yes, you can be a part of the movement, but you need to recognize who this movement truly impacts. And nine times out of 10, it's the white gaze that we see on at Pride. And it's the white gaze who end up on all these Instagram pages, even including the Puerto Vallarta gaze. The people who are most listened to are the people who can stand to not be listened to. And that is my packet up. It is not just the people in, and I personally use that example because it is something that I've experienced a lot and it's a lot of conversations that I have. And yes, I understand that there still has to be sensitivity around it, but I, but you also have to understand that, you know, if someone who's a size 10 says they're fat compared to my size 14, I feel worse. And I feel like, man, if that's how they see themselves and they must see me as so much more awful. And that's not the case. Obviously, it's our own internal hatred sometimes. But that's to say, if you are a part of a marginalized group or you are a part of a movement that is meant to call out injustices, you need to take a step back and figure out where you sit in that hierarchy. And if you're at the very top, but you're crying like you're at the very fucking bottom, you can take your little, your tiny little suitcase with all your fucking privilege and you can pack it up 
and you don't even get to put it on the plane. You know what we're going to do with that? We're losing it in customs, bitch. <laughs> oh, it's such, such a good point. Such a good point. Yeah, it reminds me of um, the episode we did, um, a reimagining of education, where we talked about why not start education with Black trans people and then go out from there. Let's look at the most narrow, inclusive, marginalized group and teach from there. It's not to erase other people, but it's to start with, you know, some empathy on the people that have some of the biggest challenges. Call me a fucking snowflake. Call me whatever you want. To me, it's humane. And that's our show. Um, so... <laughs> Well, thank you all so much for listening. Um, this has been another episode of Let's Unpack That. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. I know it's a little bit longer uh, than some of the other ones we've had recently. Um, stay tuned for the conversation on Thursday with Emily, um, where we talk about the importance of believing survivors. So if you like this episode, please send it to a friend. Um, and if not, give us a rate, like, subscribe, review, um, and follow all of us on Instagram. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.